Super Bowl one, final Packer offensive lineman announced during pregame introductions was who? Jerry Kramer. No, it's not Jerry Kramer. It is not Fuzzy Thurston. It is not Gail Gillingham. It is not Fuzzy Zeller. It is not Jim Ringo. What there? It is not. No, it's, it's not Bill Curry. Who is the god offensive lineman who was announced lastly in that stupid, asinine, crappy, garbage, terrible production game by NFL Never. Who is the offensive lineman? God this is Jerry Kramer, and you're listening to The Bridge. Get after it, Johnny. Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. The Patriots and Eagles are in Super Bowl 52. We'll talk about how they got here and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 98 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, January 24th, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available immediately after the broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night. On iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. LeBron James is the best basketball player in the game and arguably the best basketball player of all time. But while praise and accolades already come with that title, sometimes the king is certain to make sure you're aware of his greatness. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. LeBron James is making it harder and harder to not proclaim him as the best player in NBA history. But despite rewriting the record books as the greatest player of all time, the king can oftentimes find a way to draw your attention back to him. Whether feuding with the teams he's on or the teams he's left, the players already on his team, acquired for his team, or playing for another team, Drama on the court or off the court, verbally or through social media, will somehow be covered on sports television or radio, day after day after day. It's an interesting insecurity to have, to need to dictate the narrative of his career instead of mostly hanging back to watch it all play out. The latest case came on Tuesday morning. Several hours before the night, he would become the youngest player to score 30,000 points in NBA history and the only player to have 30,000 points, 7,000 rebounds, and 7,000 assists. The congratulations would come in droves when the record was set, but LeBron James beat those congratulations to the punch. 
LBJ took to Instagram and posted a picture of himself playing in high school. Along with this, quote, Wanna be one of the first to congratulate you on this accomplishment slash achievement tonight that you'll reach, exclamation point. Only a handful has reached slash seen it too. And I know it's never been a goal of yours from the beginning. Try, parentheses, please try, to take a moment for yourself on how you've done it, exclamation point. The house, with a capital H, you're about to be a part of has only six seats in it, parentheses, as of now, but one more will be added, and you should be very proud and honored to be invited inside. There's so many people to thank who has helped this even become possible, parentheses, so thank them all. And when you finally get your moment, parentheses, alone, to yourself, Smile, look up to the higher skies and say, thank you, all caps, exclamation point. So with that said, congrats again, young king, king emoji, exclamation point. The numeral one, love, exclamation point. Hashtag, strive for greatness, rocket ship emoji. Hashtag, the kid from Akron, crown emoji, end quote. For whatever reason, the hashtag humble seemed to have been left out. This is not to say LeBron does not deserve praise for this or other accomplishments. On the contrary, he often doesn't get the praise that he deserves. This all begs the question, what other figures throughout sports history and the history of the country would have also taken the opportunity to congratulate for their accomplishments if the right platform was available to them. In recent years, countless athletes have been known to give themselves pats on the back for previous or current achievements. But would Babe Ruth have thanked a young boy in reformatory school for one day becoming the first true home run king? Would Barry Sanders have informed a young man at Oklahoma State that he would become the main reason why a handful of football players would be cursed because of a video game? Is there a chance that Will Chamberlain would have given props to that lanky kid on the Harlem Globetrotters? Not for his numerous records, including a 100-point game, but for sleeping with 20,000 women. The list of possible means for congratulations in the sports world is vast, but grows even larger in the realm of U.S. history. Would a dead Benjamin Franklin thank his younger self for countless inventions, political genius, a face fit for the $100 bill, or for being one of the founding fathers of womanizing? Would Robert E. Lee congratulate a young graduate of the United States Military Academy for being named commander of his own army? Would Steve Jobs find a way to send an email to a young entrepreneur using the Apple product he just created, or give thanks for making black long-sleeved mock turtlenecks an acceptable form of work attire. Unfortunately, one will never know. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to thank our past selves. When we come back, we'll talk to a longtime NFL analyst to recap Championship Sunday and preview Super Bowl 52. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know, what would you thank your past self for, and why? A quick housekeeping note, as longtime listeners to the show might have noticed in the open, The Bridge will now be aired Monday through Friday on Sports Radio America at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. 
with new episodes airing every Wednesday, featuring the usual cavalcade of segments and an interview with a guest to headline the show. We're also in the process of working on a second show that will air on Mondays and will be more sports talk specific, and I'll have more information about that in the coming weeks. Now to a still new segment to the bridge, highlighting some quotes or sound bites from the latest week in sports. Here's this week's edition of the what? What you say? First to the NBA, social media's favorite league. The storylines have been aplenty the last couple weeks, from the Houston Rockets players using an underground tunnel to try and get into the Clippers' locker room to supposedly fight, from players on the court getting chippy or coming close to actually fighting, to the Cleveland Cavaliers seemingly spiraling slowly out of control. Last week, Spurs head coach Greg Popovich provided yet another gold piece of sound when he voiced his opinion on fighting in the NBA. About, yes, sir. What about player versus player incidents that were a couple over the past couple of days? Um, oh, you mean those fights. typical NBA fights where they go, let me at him, let me at him. <laughs> <laughs> I would have kicked his ass. Somebody held me back. The NBA fights are the silliest, namby pambiest things I've ever seen in my life. So, except there was that one in the stands a few years ago. That one got ugly. <laughs> but nobody wants those fights. You know, Even the players don't want those fights. What you say? And quickly to the National Football League, where the main storyline heading into the AFC Championship game was centered around Tom Brady's thumb, and if a cut he suffered at practice would either affect his game or keep him from playing in it altogether. The speculations of the severity of the injury were vast. Lines in Vegas moved on the game, and Brady did the media no favors at his first presser, saying he would not talk about it when asked, and then answering the question if he's confident he would actually play in the game with, we'll see. Well, he did play in the game, his thumb was fine, and Brady was vintage and once again leading the Patriots back from a deficit for a playoff win. Of course, head coach Bill Belichick was asked after the game about Brady's thumb and his performance in dealing with it, and obviously Coach Belichick had nothing but praise for his future Hall of Fame quarterback. Bill, did anything have to change game plan-wise because of Brady's hand? Not that I'm aware of, Bob. Can you, can you just speak to the the resourcefulness of Tom dealing with something like that midweek and then coming out and playing playing a huge game like that? I mean, look, Tom did a great job, and he's a tough guy. We all know that, all right? But I mean, I'm not talking about open-heart surgery here. What you say? It was a devastating loss for the Jacksonville Jaguars, but fans should still hold some optimism for what the future of the young team could hold. And if the optimism is even half of what Jags fan Roberta Ann Montgomery had for her team when asked about the draft two years ago, the fan base should be more than all right. They say they have the best draft in the entire NFL. Are you surprised to hear that? <laughs> Certainly not. The first year we took it to the limit. Take it to the limit. One more. And I was in Miami with my new beach house. Well, it was a couple minutes from the beach. It's been 20 years since then. We haven't been too strong in the last few years. Oh, we've been strong. We're just playing by the rules. You can't have a newcomer come in and steal a show. What you say? Oh, and since we've already talked about LeBron earlier in the show, I would be remiss if I didn't add one of the best sound bites in perhaps sports history. Watch your mouth, woman. Hey! If I remember your Facebook, you better hold What you Now to this week's guest in Sigmund Bloom. He is the co-owner of FootballGuys.com, and you can find him writing and producing audio, video, and print content about the NFL basically all year round. He was kind enough to join the show during a very busy time for football guys, no pun intended, and we'll chat about how he got into covering football and some of what you'll find through football guys. Before then, recapping Championship Sunday, previewing the Super Bowl, and end with a short discussion on some of the quarterbacks we'll see taken in this year's NFL Draft. 
You can follow Sigmund on Twitter. He's at Sigmund Bloom. That's S-I-G-M-U-N-D-B-L-O-O-M. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Sigmund Bloom. He is the co-owner of FootballGuys.com and is writing and producing audio, video, and print content about the NFL basically all year round. Sigmund, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? Very good. And uh, as usual, even though there's fewer and fewer games to talk about in the NFL, it seems like there's more and more to talk about when we're deciphering what's going on with these franchises. Of course, the draft is planting all kinds of seeds in our head now. We're starting to scratch the surface of franchise tag situations, free agency, and uh, it, it's a treadmill, but the constant change in scenery keeps us going. Nothing quite circles the wagons like the National Football League when it comes to news. It is a year-round job, and even though people think, as you mentioned, when there's less games, the work might be less, but it's usually quite the opposite because there's always something going on. Before we get into what happened on Championship Sunday and what we'll be seeing in the Super Bowl and some of the chatter that'll go on in the offseason, I thought we could turn back the clocks a little bit to get started and give listeners a chance to get to know what you do year-round can you offer up a Cliff Notes version of sorts of how you went from graduating from Syracuse to studying law to now covering the National Football League? Yeah, I'm not. And Cliff Notes versions of anything is not my forte, but uh, I was very lucky in a way. You know, I went to Syracuse University, and anybody in, in media and sports media knows you, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a three Syracuse grads. And I went to Syracuse to pursue a dream really to be the play-by-play announcer for the Pittsburgh Pirates, but that's a sore subject right now. Uh, and through a long and winding road in, in the mid 2000s, you know, found my way back to what I wanted to do because the internet democratized media and you could put your voice out there through print, through video, through audio. And if you could find an audience, then you could rub two sticks together and, and start a fire that you could warm yourself around. And I was very lucky in some ways because what has happened since we've had smartphones and bandwidth and really the growth of the media, uh, new media on the internet is incredible talent uh, and innovation by people covering sports and any number of other things. Uh, And I was just lucky to be foolish enough to jump out of the airplane at a time when it wasn't clear yet that the internet was going to support basically as much media as, as old media and probably eventually, if it hasn't already, surpassed old media. So I just like thinking about and talking about sports. I've always found it very stimulating. I grew up in the western Pennsylvania, uh, coal mining country uh, under the you know umbrella of Chuck Knoll and, and the Steelers dynasties and Mario Lemieux and, and Barry Bonds and Andy Vance like and Bobby Bonilla and Jim Leland. And uh, it, we lived and breathed sports. And I thought that was a pretty good template for how to run your life. So Donovan McNabb didn't change you to an Eagles fan because you got to watch him play at Syracuse, right? <laughs> right. And I, you, know, you bring that up and I was there for the same four years. You know, it was uh, after Marvin Graves, he and Kevin Johnson were competing as freshmen to be the quarterbacks for Syracuse. And McNabb won, and Johnson switched to wide receiver, and he actually ended up being a pretty good wide receiver for the Browns, among other teams. And McNabb was actually a pretty good basketball player, too. But come February, he would join the Syracuse basketball team. And even though you don't associate him with height, he was a good rebounder in that Charles Barkley uh, format uh, of you, you using your, your hind end to create room underneath the bucket. And uh, it was really fun to be there. And I think that's one of the last times anybody associated the word fun with Syracuse football, with the exception of that great win they had this year. That's right. And that was in the news a lot when it came down to where Clemson would be or where they deserve to be based on that beatdown that they suffered at the hand of the Orange. When it comes to what you do at Football Guys, is there anything that you had to get used to in a sense of the evolution of media, as you mentioned, having to cover much more than years past as far as fantasy football goes or having to get into audio and do podcasting instead of just writing things down? What would you say was the hardest thing for you to, in a sense, maybe wrap your head around and and really have to get maybe a little bit better at to get to where you guys are now? Well, 
a lot of this has been, I don't want to say effortless because you know, there's always effort, but football guys has always been uh, going under the assumption that our staff comes from our community. And literally we would hire, including me from uh, message board posters from subscribers. So it was never difficult to transition from creating content for the audience because I was part of the audience. And this is something when people ask me for advice on how to break into this and really anything where things are changing now and maybe things that weren't occupations before occupations now and traditional occupations aren't supporting as many uh, jobs as they used to. You're the audience and put something out there that you want that isn't out there. So uh, from the perspective of audio, from the perspective of of writing and, and creating features, that was simple in a sense because I was creating things that I wanted to be out there as a subscriber, as a member of the community. The one part that was difficult, and I'd love to have a chance to revisit this, is we did do video in 2007, 2008, 2009. We did the five-minute drill, uh, a talking head fantasy football advice show, and we did Draft Guys TV where we went to the all-star games and uh, filmed the practices and broke down the practices and gave profiles of some of the players in the draft. And I think that being in front of the camera, I had a, a self-consciousness in a bad way about it. Um, and I was thinking too much about what not to do or how what I was projecting. Instead of just delivering the, the information and, and being kind of part of that infinitely long sports bar that we all like to be part of in, in this, uh, what we do, you know, podcasting and writing and so on. And uh, I, so I think that, you know, that, that circles back around to... I, I, Forgetting about yourself, I guess, that was the hard part. Not so difficult when I'm talking to you right now or when I'm writing to an audience, but being in front of a camera all of a sudden makes you realize everyone's looking at me. And if people wanted to find more of what you do, Football Guys does offer bios pretty much for everyone that provides content on the website or on different platforms. And I just have to ask real quickly before getting back into the National Football League, Fish is coming to Austin, Texas in their yes. summer tour, so I'm guessing you'll be there. Yes, July 31st. Yeah, it's very exciting. And there was a time um, when I was at Syracuse, which is really close to um, you know, ground zero for uh, the, the fish scene in the mid-90s. We were so close to Vermont and New York City and Boston and all these places where they would hit um, that m- my life schedule was oriented around fish tour. Not so much anymore. But that makes it that much sweeter when they do come back down to Texas. And that will be a wonderful night. So, yeah, if anybody is listening out there, uh, look me up. It should be a fantastic evening to remember. So then to switch to the NFL and maybe not bore people with what we do in our spare time, I guess you would say, Championship Sunday was pretty exciting, at least in the first game. (laughs) Maybe not so much after the first quarter of the second game, but the New England Patriots game, shockingly enough, did had some drama. And unfortunately, as a fan, I've become spoiled in the sense where now when the Patriots are trailing or not playing their best in the first half or even in the third quarter, there's a huge part of me that thinks they're still going to come back. They're still going to find a way to win this football game. Did you get that similar sense when Jacksonville was able to take the early control but seemed to be a little bit more tentative in the second half? I unfortunately fell into the trap of believing uh, and was let down like so many other people. Now, I'm a lifelong Steelers fan, and I suppose part of my emotional investment was, hey, if the team that beat the Steelers can go into New England and beat New England, which the Steelers haven't been able to do in the playoffs, the Steelers haven't made a Super Bowl and they've had to play New England in the playoffs, uh, that would you feel some sense of vindication. Uh, and I also had some confidence because up in the booth, up in the, the, the press box, they had uh, Tom Coughlin. And Tom Coughlin knows a thing or two about beating the Patriots in January and February when it counts for good. Uh, and it seemed like they had the game plan to win. And then once that game plan worked and staked them to a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter, they abandoned it. And that's what's frustrating. And it makes you wonder that it isn't just from a positive point of view as a Patriots fan or as the Patriots players. And this is that idea, you know, we heard John Dorsey at the, at the Senior Bowl talking about the Browns' decision at quarterback. A winner, most first and foremost, does he win? And 
although that's old school thinking, the reason that's important from a, a point of view of team building is that if a team believes in their quarterback, then they always play relaxed, no matter, as you said, what the score is or how the game has been going, because they believe we're going to come back and we're going to win. And you wonder if that creeps into the brain of the opponent. And did it creep into the brain of the opponent last year in the Super Bowl or any number of other times? Because the number of times the Patriots have come back from double-digit deficits in the playoffs is ridiculous. Uh, you know, when a team can stake themselves to a 10 or more point lead in a playoff game, it probably means there's a, a superior team and the Patriots still somehow always find a way. In some cases, it's because these teams undo themselves psychologically. And I think from a, a play calling and a philo- philosophical point of view, the Jags did that to themselves in the fourth quarter. As a Denver Broncos fan, there were two instances that happened during the game that I am far too familiar with. One was in the second quarter when the Jacksonville Jaguars decided with 55 seconds left that they were perfectly content with kneeling the football and going into the half with the lead. I remember when the Broncos did that against the Baltimore Ravens. We remember the miracle pass from Joe Flacco to send them en route to the Super Bowl. So that was something that struck a chord with me, like, oh, they're not even going to try. They'll just kneel it out and play for another quarter and hope things go better the second time around. And the second thing was their offensive play calling. It seemed like they were okay with not necessarily trying too many difficult things on offense, running the ball on first down pretty much every drive. And Warren Sharp on Twitter had an amazing thread to sort of document that and what our eyes were seeing in type to let everyone know that, yes, Jacksonville was really just having a simple game plan, running incredibly similar plays each drive, and what we were watching was believable. And that was something that the Broncos implemented a little bit when Peyton Manning was under center and his arm was not what it once was. They were content with also giving the ball back to the defense and having them stop the New England Patriots, for example. Unfortunately for Jacksonville, they're not quite where that Denver Broncos defense was. There were several plays that have been talked about, whether that's from the referees, whether that's from the fumble recovery that was blown dead without being able to be returned. Is there a play or maybe plays that sticks out to you as a turning point from that game where maybe you thought, if that doesn't go right, I think this is it for the Jacksonville Jaguars? The third and 18 conversion to Danny Amendola, was uh, a moment in the game where I think when the Patriots, so even though the fumble recovery by Miles Jack was blown dead, it was still a moment in the game when the momentum seemed to be following the Patriots and the classic Patriots comeback script. And then you have an outstanding individual play. And this is where the Jags say, no, not this time. And this is where the Broncos were able to say, no, not this time. It's outstanding individual plays on the defensive side of the ball. And then the Patriots get the ball back and the Jags get a sack and put them in a third and 18. And at that point, you really feel like if the Jags can get the ball back and even just continue to frustrate Tom Brady the way they had for basically the entire game, then the momentum would really be on their side and and they could start teeing off on him. Much the way, you know, you talk about Peyton Manning, I think back to when the, the Steelers were able to beat um, Peyton Manning in the, that classic, like, Vander Jack miss game when Jerome Bettis fumbled. Oh, NFL playoff football. So I think that third and 18, the third and 18 conversion, I think was a moment maybe when the Jags relaxed and thought, okay, this is going to work out. And I don't think they ever got their defensive edge back at that point. Um, and we could talk about, you know, Kelvin Smith was held on Deion Lewis's game-clinching run. We can talk about some different things that didn't go the Jags' way, but they played well enough, and they had an inspired enough game plan and execution by Blake Bortles up until the fourth quarter to win that game. And uh, they shouldn't be putting themselves in a position where one call by the ref, one inadvertent whistle decides the game. And it's going to sting, and it's going to sit with them for an entire offseason, and it's maybe too much going to inform their decision on Blake Bortles. That that's a whole other situation. You know, we could do hours on just the quarterback decisions that have to be made in the off season this year and how fascinating that's all going to be. But 
unfortunately for everybody except for Patriots fans, uh, th- this one is just another chapter in the, the dominance of, of Tom Brady and the Patriots and really a, a psychological, emotional edge that they have that seems to grow every time they add another chapter. Do you think there's a quick answer for the future of Blake Bortles? I, I think it's interesting on Dan Lebetard's show, say on ESPN, he brings on Chris Sims, who analyzes what quarterbacks currently in the National Football League are better than Blake Bortles with whatever stats he happens to have. And the list gets more humorous as you get closer and closer to Blake, as you can imagine. But he did play one of the better games we'll see him play. And people have long talked about that, about what he was able to do in the first half. But is that an example of the major chatter I think we'll see in the offseason where it will be interesting to see if they bring him back, if they're comfortable with having him back again for another season at quarterback? I don't have an easy answer for this because I think there are so many moving parts to the quarterback picture this off season that uh, answer a few questions, you know, will they be able to make a run at Kirk cousins? Uh, what's the trade price for Alex Smith going to be? Are they willing to pay that? Which quarterback will the Vikings decide to keep, or will they decide to keep any of those quarterbacks? So I think the Jags are going to take a, a look at what else is available on the other side of that equation but at the same time, maybe the best answer would be for them to go forward with Blake Bortles because you would hope that in the second year of, of the Marone Hackett offense and that system that he could grow, not just in that playoff game, but in the second half of the season, you certainly saw him overcome injuries at wide receiver. And I think you saw his uh, teammates if not the coaches, his teammates start to have more confidence in him. And if the Broncos can win a Super Bowl with one foot in the grave, Peyton Manning, the Jags can do it with this defense and Blake Bortles. And hey, as someone that knows a multitude of things about fantasy football, it actually wasn't a bad thing to have Jacksonville players on your team this year, even at wide receiver. Blake Bortles was winning people fantasy football matches in week 14 and week 15. So on that sense of things, Keep him around for the fantasy football gods. You can get him much later in the draft. Though I'm sure Tom Coughlin would love to hear us comparing his team to what our fantasy football teams can do. We'll get back to the Patriots, obviously, but to switch quickly to the Eagles-Vikings game, which turned into a complete demolishing of the Vikings as the game went on. It appeared that it would be close, and it appeared that the Vikings were going to take control after a great first drive. But once that turnover happened, the wheels completely came off the cart for them, and the Eagles kept their foot on the gas. Did that end result surprise you as to what the Eagles were able to do to that vaunted Vikings defense and, and really just cruise to the win? It surprised me, but I think that uh, the Eagles did a fantastic job in the playoffs of harnessing that emotional energy that was released when they were, despite being the number one seed, a home underdog in both playoff games. Uh, obviously, this was a, a, a very well-prepared team. I think that what makes this Super Bowl a fascinating one and a hook or an angle to care about this Super Bowl other than rooting against the Patriots, but I do think that we see that Doug Peterson and his staff are in the Bill Belichick mold of, we don't just have a way that we win on offense or a way that we win on defense. We're going to look at our opponent. We're going to judge our opponent's strengths and weaknesses. We're going to judge our strengths and weaknesses. And we're going to try to create situations on both sides of the ball that are advantageous for us and really try to win this game against this opponent. And that showed up in this game against Minnesota, in addition to the emotional, spiritual edge they had. And you wonder maybe if Minnesota and just the immense uh, emotional ex- expense of everything they went through in that game against New Orleans left them unable to, to answer the bell because what you saw was in the trenches specifically. And, and kudos to the uh, Eagles offensive line. I think that's where they dominated that Vikings defense. Uh, the, the Vikings just weren't able to match their intensity. And that should give the, the Eagles a lot of confidence going into the Super Bowl, in addition to coaches that have them well-prepared and coaches that are willing to take chances in their game plan and not play it safe. 
it was interesting to see how dominated they ended up becoming. They couldn't really get much going on offense. It, it was sort of a fall-to-earth moment maybe for Case Keenum, for some fans that maybe thought that he would fall down back to earth after having a great season thrown into the quarterback position as the third-string guy, being able to lead them to the NFC Championship game. So they do have a lot of questions to be answered especially at the quarterback position but they are getting back a running back that was incredibly successful for them before going down with injury I think if they can figure out that quarterback position easier said than done as the National Football League knows they could probably at least get back to where they were this year if things all fall into place of course but now we have a rematch of Super Bowl 39 Going all the way back to the Donovan McNabb days of exactly. when they were able to get there. So Let's play six degrees of Donovan McNabb. Amazing. Amazing how that ends up working itself back around. And I know people are saying, at least people not in the Northeast, how they'll be able to get into the Super Bowl because it's two fan bases that while they're huge, they are in a certain part of the country. So why should the West Coast care? But I think there are a couple of good storylines to this in that for New England – it almost seems like this is a goodbye tour of sorts. We actually saw Bill Belichick show emotion after they won the game over Jacksonville, gave a little hug to Matt Patricia, which maybe he regretted midway through because he was showing emotion. But it's something yeah. that we can circle on the calendar as far as this is the last ride for several on the coaching staff. And who knows who it will be the last ride for when the dust finally settles for this team it seems like they will have the same amount of clout when it comes to the Super Bowl. They're so well-versed in what to do in games like this, whereas the Eagles are stepping into new territory of sorts, especially with Nick Foles under center. Not having that playoff experience, maybe the lights will be too bright. We'll only have to watch them play the game to find out. But are there any themes that stick out to you for this game that we can watch, whether it's on the offensive or defensive side, or just for the teams in general that could get us excited on Super Bowl Sunday? Well, one thing that should make everyone excited is that the Patriots have never played their A game in a Super Bowl. I mean, they've won these five Super Bowls and lost a, a pair to the Giants, but never have we seen the Patriots play their best game in the Super Bowl. Um, it, and it, what it means is opponents have, have been able to play up to them, uh, and it should be a very competitive game. And the Eagles have Jim Schwartz. Uh, I know that we talked about this a lot leading up to the Jags game because of Tom Coughlin and because of the pass rush. Although when we start to, and, you, and I'm so glad you mentioned Warren Sharp, by the way, and not just his thread, but even some of the pregame analysis he did on how the Jags defense uh, struggled sometimes when they weren't facing three wide sets and, and it, really getting into numbers that show things that intuitively we grasp, but that confirm these things for us, but always the key to beating the Patriots is getting pressure with your front four and the Eagles can do that. And the Eagles can do that, not just because of the quality of the players they have on their defensive line, but the depth they have. And we really saw that as they uh, just perplexed and harassed Case Keenum uh, and that that is something that they should be able to do with Tom Brady with the quality and depth of players they have on the defensive line. And they have a lot of, of players. I think that, again, they really uh, embrace this us-against-the-world mentality despite being a number one seed because they haven't been respected. And I'm sure that most of the stories for the next two weeks are going to be about the Patriots. So that's more fuel for them. And they won't make the same mistake. Doug Peterson won't make the same kind of mistakes that Andy Reid has made. So we can go back to the long and winding road for the Eagles franchise with Andy Reid, an excellent coach. They were an excellent franchise for a long time, but never getting over the hump. And then going diametrically, I won't say opposite, but just a, a great departure from Andy Reid's thought of Chip Kelly, giving Chip Kelly almost complete control. That ends up being a disaster. And really going back to Doug Peterson, which is like – uh, hey, we were wrong. It wasn't so bad with Andy Reid, but maybe now uh, Doug Peterson has a lot of Andy Reid's strengths without some of the in-game weaknesses that he has. So I, I think this is setting up for another recipe uh, of the Eagles feeling disrespected and trying to prove to everybody what they can do. And also, I've got to mention the name Howie Roseman. I, I want to say, I haven't confirmed this, that every turnover 
and score by the Eagles uh, was by a player that wasn't on the roster last year, um, maybe even every sack. And that is a testament to for a team that has had their roster completely overhauled twice in the last five years for the cohesiveness of the culture, for the willingness of the coaches to embrace new faces, including LeGarrette Blunt, who you know was a, a, a player that the Patriots picked up. Um, so, and the one thing I don't want to see happen in the Super Bowl as a Steelers fan is James Harrison making plays for the Patriots because that's a story I wouldn't like to revisit. There's a lot of great points in there. You started with New England not playing its best games in the Super Bowl. They don't ever score in the first quarter of Super Bowl. So if the Eagles can get something going early, we'll find New England again having to come back from a deficit. And I do agree with that us-against-the-world mentality that Philly has had this season, especially in the tail end of the season once Carson Wentz went down. It seems different this year for Philadelphia and even their fans. Like They actually believe that they can win. There's not any off-the-field issues that have plagued the team in, in some years with players or coaches or GMs or whatever they have had to deal with. They're a very close-knit group. We're seeing a Philadelphia team that we haven't seen in a long time, and the fans are really embracing that, and they'll, they'll surely be there when that Sunday comes around to root on the team. It's just in the back of my mind whether or not Nick Foles can step up to the plate, in a sense, for a game of that magnitude because, as we know, He isn't a starting quarterback, though he does have incredible numbers in the record books for things he's been able to do when he's been under center. He has a Pro Bowl under his belt. There's records that he breaks and becomes one of seemingly every game that he plays in. But maybe there is a reason that he's not a starting quarterback, whether that's for Carson Wentz or other reasons as well. And it will be interesting to see under that stage if he can play with that fluidity that he had last game where he was just chucking the ball on on plays taking risks and they played incredibly loose which is what they'll have to do again against New England and even though I hate to ask a question like this we're around that time of year where everybody wants to know predictions and, and what you think we'll see in the Super Bowl so I guess we can word it as what will the Eagles need to do to take down the juggernaut that is the New England Patriots that is Bill Belichick and that is Tom Brady well, I think you're going to need to score touchdowns, uh, 27, 28 points to win at least, uh, and and not make any unforced errors on offense. Uh, and Foles appears to be very confident, uh, well-prepared team. He trusts his teammates. And look, this is a team with a, a good offensive line even without Jason Peters, uh, a varied backfield that can give the opponent a lot of looks even without Darren Sproles and a lot of complementary parts in the passing game, Alshon Jeffrey, Torrey Smith, Nelson Aguilar, Zach Ertz, Trey Burton, uh, allow them to attack a a Patriots defense that whatever their scoring defense stats look like, they gave up a lot of yards. And there's a lot there for Doug Peterson to look at, save the fourth quarter. Last week, uh, the Jacksonville did that the Philadelphia Eagles can reproduce and then some is – Nick Foles a worse quarterback than Blake Bortles? I don't think so. And I think there will be a lot of opportunities for success with play calling and play sequencing. And if it worked against Minnesota, it can absolutely work against New England. And then you can have this opportunistic defense that can create some momentum plays against Tom Brady. And as long as they can get some pressure on Tom Brady uh, and, and maybe force a turnover or two, this could be a really fun game. And as you said, this is a different Eagles team. Unlike the Jags, unlike teams in the past, like the Falcons last year, they can get to a point where psychologically they may say to themselves, we're going to do this. And that's exactly the point that everything falls apart. I think this is an Eagles team that really understands what it takes to see a season all the way through from start to finish and hoist the trophy. And I don't think they're going to relax until there's three zeros on the clock, which means that we'll all be able to stay very stimulated by this game all the way through and not just because we're watching another collapse against the Patriots. I have two quick ones to close out with you, and I don't want to end on a sour note, so I'll ask one first. 
how are you feeling about the Pittsburgh Steelers? Is this going to be something that sort of eats at you for the next couple of months based on what ended up happening to them to end the season? Will there be a light at the end of the tunnel for all the drama that they had to deal with this year? What is the future looking like for the Pittsburgh Steelers, in your opinion, as a fan? Yeah, I'm afraid the window's closing. Uh, and I think we're going to look back on this team for a blink of an eye this year, finally had the Bell, Brown, Bryant, Ben offense assembled and couldn't even take it to a conference championship game. I don't expect Le'Veon Bell to be back with the Steelers. The cap situation is not going to be good. The feeling between the team and the players is not going to be good. And I would expect him to play elsewhere. I like James Conner. I love the James Conner story. I love the connection to the city, to Western Pennsylvania. But that's a, a tactically a big drop-off from Le'Veon Bell to James Conner. I love Antonio Brown. I want to be there the day that he gets inducted into Canton. But I don't know that this is a team. I think Randy Fickner is going to be a fine offensive coordinator for continuity. Uh, I, I hope at least that clearing up some of the personality conflicts will help the offense. But there's still problems on the defense. And there was some questions about why were there changes on the offensive side, on the coaching staff, and on the defensive side. And one of the answers we got was, well, Mike Tomlin has been hands-on with this defense in a way that he hasn't been in the past. So if someone was going to get fired, it would have to be Mike Tomlin. We know that's not going to happen. So I'm afraid that we may have seen this team uh, with this collection of players go as far as it's going to go. And the Ben Roethlisberger era is getting into its late autumn. And I don't know who's coming behind Ben Roethlisberger. This could be a good draft with four or even five first-round quarterbacks for a team at the end of the first round, like the Steelers, to consider taking a quarterback and look to the future. I'm not sure if they'll be able to do that. I think they should throw a fourth-round pick at Cleveland for Deshaun Kaiser, but that's a whole other subject. Uh, so I'm afraid that, that we've seen what this version of the Steelers can do, and I can, as a Steelers fan, take some solace in the fact that they did get that Super Bowl uh, against Arizona. And again, back to James Harrison. Uh, so that we have that from the Mike Tomlin era. And I'm afraid that's going to be the one Super Bowl moment that we can cherish. And the last one for you is I know people are obviously have the Super Bowl in the back of their mind, but the Senior Bowl is going on now. We're getting all sorts of stories and reviews and previews on some of the draft picks and prospects that we'll see in the upcoming weeks and in the upcoming months as well. You mentioned already what the quarterback situation is going to be like for far too many teams in the National Football League, as it always seems to be. Is there someone that sticks out to you so far as maybe an early favor to either be the first, second, or third pick of the draft or a quarterback we might see develop into something significantly special, at least over the course of a couple seasons? Well, I'll answer the second part of that first. Uh, and I think that the league is too backward-looking instead of forward-looking when it comes to quarterback play. And Lamar Jackson is a player that gives you more than enough to work with To with a creative offensive coordinator that is willing to embrace the strengths of this quarterback and not try to fit him into the traditional mold of a pocket quarterback. And there are some things mechanically that need to be improved with Lamar Jackson, but there are lots of things, uh, ways that he can put pressure on a defense that you can't teach or manufacture in a quarterback and he'll probably be the fifth quarterback off the board. He may even fall into the second round, he, a playoff team looking to the future, a new England, a Pittsburgh uh, may be smart enough to take him and give him that year or two on the bench that, uh, you know, and Deshaun Watson, I think has some similar, I don't think Watson is the athlete that Jackson is, but I think he was a more fundamentally sound passer, although he has was subject to some of the, uh, erratic accuracy that Jackson is subject to at times. But I think we're going to look back in a few years, assuming that there's a coaching staff that takes him that's willing to embrace his strengths and play away from his weaknesses, which you would hope that's why they would take him, that we'll look back on Lamar Jackson as the best quarterback pick in this class. That being said, I do think that the Browns are going to be the story as far as which quarterback will be the first quarterback off the board. And, you know, the two quarterbacks down in Mobile right now are very interesting. Even though the Browns chose not, it's the Broncos with the number five pick and not the Browns with the number one and number four pick coaching Baker Mayfield, Oklahoma, and Josh Allen from Wyoming. And both of them represent storylines that are that backwards looking old school NFL. With Josh Allen, it's the uh, massive frame, 
unbelievable natural arm talent. The ball comes out of his hand so hot, uh, and he can make plays that only he can make uh, creatively outside of the pocket, uh, make throws that only he can make. And then Baker Mayfield, and I saw John Dorsey, uh, a quintessential old-school football mind, talking about what he wants in a quarterback. What does he want in a quarterback? Does he win? Does he win? Um, so uh, are the Browns going to find their match with one of these two quarterbacks? I, I think it's interesting because Josh Rosen from UCLA and Sam Darnold from USC represent more known quantities without quite the high ceiling or some of the more wild card factors of Mayfield and Allen. And that isn't necessarily something that's going to get uh, a team with a number one pick excited. But then there's the Giants there returning back to maybe some more conservative thinking that they would probably be happy to snap up Rosen or Darnold and let the Browns take one of those shiny toys, number one. It'll certainly be interesting. It always provides the main storylines heading into the draft, after the draft, and even once the season starts as to why this particular draft pick either isn't playing or playing at the potential they hoped he would. And that's just stuff to continue keeping you busy, which is something, as we mentioned, never ends in the 365 of the year. The NFL always seems to be there with something else to cover. And I do thank you, Sigmund, for coming on my show and allowing me to have you cover some of the things that have happened as far as Championship Sunday, what we'll see in the Super Bowl, and what you guys are doing over at footballguys.com. Definitely a great source for anyone interested, not only in the NFL, but fantasy football and all sorts of things that you guys have going throughout the year. So it's a great resource to have. I'm glad I can have you in my Rolodex for down the road. I'm sure we can always find something to talk about. But thank you again so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed getting a chat. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Look forward to future opportunities. And I'm just glad to be in in company of some of the other uh, great football minds and sports minds you've had on the show. Thanks again to Sigmund for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it and holds the reins here, but don't worry. There aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. To further prove the point of Joe's love of film, he recently completed a tour of seven films in seven days, and the film you're about to hear about was on that list. This week, Joe will break down I, Tanya which Rotten Tomatoes describes as based on the unbelievable but true events. I, Tanya is a darkly comedic tale of American figure skater Tanya Harding and one of the most sensational scandals in sports history. Though Harding was the first American woman to complete a triple axel in competition, her legacy was forever defined by her association with the infamous ill-conceived, and even more poorly executed attack on fellow Olympic competitor Nancy Kerrigan, featuring an iconic turn by Margot Robbie as the fiery Harding, a mustachioed Sebastian Stan as her impulsive ex-husband, a tour de force performance by Allison Janney as her acid-tongued mother, I, Tanya is an absurd, a reverent and piercing portrayal of Harding's life and career in all of its unchecked and checkered glory. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. It started with a photo. Was it the first set photo? I'm not sure, but it is the first image I saw during the production. Margot Robbie with 80s-style hair 
standing next to Sebastian Stan, who sported a mustache. The two portrayed infamous couple Tanya Harding and Jeff Galuli on the set of I, Tanya. At the time, I didn't think a Tanya Harding biopic was something audiences clamored for, and I thought it an odd choice for Margot Robbie, who hadn't been in an acclaimed film since she broke out in The Wolf of Wall Street in 2013, and Sebastian Stan, whose main work had been his portrayal of Bucky Barnes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I didn't think it would be a bad film, but it didn't strike me as a film that would get much attention. Then the buzz began. Critics started saying Margot Robbie deserves award attention, and Allison Janney deserves award attention, and Aitanya itself deserves award attention. Then the limited December release rolls around and the buzz continues. In fact, it gets stronger. Robbie earned a nomination for Best Actress in a Leading Role at the Golden Globes and Screen Actors Guild Awards. Janney won the Golden Globe and SAG Award for Best Supporting Actress, defeating strong competition from Laurie Metcalf in Lady Bird. I waited weeks after its limited release, thinking, this movie must be pretty good. Well, the Cinemark in Music, Pennsylvania finally got it. And I finally saw it. And it was not good. It was phenomenal. Let's go to the tape. Itania is based off interviews from Harding, Galuli, Harding's mother, and Harding's bodyguard, Sean Eckhart. So some of the stories conflict each other, which throws the movie into a high-paced, exciting whirlwind. Characters break the fourth wall to tell the audience that this never happened or this did happen. The interviews are perfectly interweaved into the story, and the frequent activity keeps audiences on the edge of their seats. This all wouldn't have been possible without the superb acting of Robbie, Janney, and Stan. Robbie's performance is the best of her career as she looks the part and handles the skating well although I realized she didn't do all of it, which is a credit to how the movie was shot. As Robbie skates, the camera follows her right on the ice with some nice tracking shots. You're right there with her throughout her routine. It's a very well-shot film. Anyway, back to Robbie. If she handled the skating and Harding's look, I knew the rest would come easy for Robbie, as her acting talent speaks for itself. She nails the mannerisms, accent, and dialogue. She captures everything a leading woman needs to in an award-caliber film. Allison Janney is hilarious and despicable in a supporting role. She proves a true veteran of cinema. She's been phenomenal ever since I saw her star in The West Wing. Her performance didn't shock me, but she absolutely took this role and ran, and it's a blast to watch. The biggest surprise was Sebastian Stan. I like him as an actor, but I didn't realize his range. This is the best I've ever seen him. He switches from charming to terrifying in the blink of an eye. He also nails the voice of Galuli. I know this because they played the clips of the interviews during the credits. He went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Robbie and Janney, and that takes a lot of talent. I hope this performance doesn't get overlooked because it was fun to watch him break out and show his range. This movie also captures the correct tone. I, Tanya balances humor and drama perfectly, making for an incredibly entertaining movie with a lot of laughs while tackling the tougher moments. There was a way to make this movie told as a straight drama, which just wouldn't have worked. The script keeps the movie snappy instead of a dull, sad story. The bottom line, I, Tanya is one of the best movies of the year with incredible, award-worthy performances from Margot Robbie, Allison Janney, and Sebastian Stan. The tone is perfect, making for a fun and intelligent film. The masterful direction and camera work keep pace with the phenomenal script. The fourth wall breaking only brings the audience further into the movie that has already hooked you from the start. All I could do is nitpick. One of the characters, Sean Eckhart, becomes a little too much to handle by the end of the movie. His act becomes a little old and one note. But the real life character was like that. So that's a nitpick, my friends. And as you know, I only nitpick the movies I adore. I'll compare I, Tanya to Tom Brady. Not so much in the sense that I, Tanya is one of the greatest movies of all time, more so because when Brady first entered the league as the 199th pick in the draft, no one would have thought he'd be that great. I, Tanya is one of the best of the year, folks. Be sure to check it out before it's gone. Why? 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 <laughs> Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. 
You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Thank you.